Well, dear friends, if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Second Chronicles and chapter 22. 2 Chronicles and chapter 22. Tonight we are considering the conclusion of this chapter, looking at verses 10 through 12, a short section but packed with all kinds of wonderful truths to consider. And before we read God's Word, let's ask the Lord one, one more time to draw near to us. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, as we come to posture our souls beneath the very Word of the living God, we ask that You would grant us ears that hear. And would You enlighten our eyes and cause our hearts to rejoice over the truths that You tell us. Would You bring transformation to us and right thinking about You. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Second Chronicles 22, beginning in verse 10. Hear now God's Word. Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family of the house of Judah. But Jehoshabeth, the daughter of the king, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons, who were about to be put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus Jehoshabeth, the daughter of King Jehoram, and wife of Jehoiada the priest, because she was a sister of Ahaziah, hid him from Athaliah, so that she did not put him to death. And he remained with them six years, hidden in the house of God, while Athaliah reigned over the land." This is God's holy word, and may He bless it to us. Well, we noted a couple of weeks back that upon the transition of power after the godly king Jehoshaphat, Judah and the royal line enters a very dark season. Unfortunately, the darkness was allowed to develop due to Jehoshaphat's folly. Sometimes, godly people do really dumb things. And that's especially foolish when you enter into an alliance, a marriage alliance with Ahab's and Jezebel's house, bringing Athaliah, a real snake, into the very Davidic line. And that ranks right up there maybe with some of the stupidest things done by the godly in the Bible. Now, I'm not yet opening up the text just as a general application. We all, as the godly, as the people of the Lord, we've got to see the ramifications of our decisions. Because we can make decisions that brings a multitude of trouble to our children and our grandchildren and beyond. Therefore, we must be careful to walk in godliness and be careful to live according to the principles of God's Word and not the whims of culture. We have to be careful not to be seized by pragmatic concerns so that we fail to live according to what is written. Indeed, what is written in this text is written for our instruction. You see, with this Jezebel clone now in the royal house, whispering first in the ear of her husband, Jehoram, and then into her son's ear, Ahaziah, ominous clouds of judgment have moved over Judah and David's line. Now, God's displeasure at the evil promoted in these days is quite obvious. Evil like Jehoram murdering his brothers, and both Jehoram and Ahaziah advancing idolatrous worship and listening to wicked counselors. In the days of these kings, Yahweh has 
shrunk Judah. He has struck down the family members of the children of the king. He even smote both Jehoram and Ahaziah themselves. You remember, Jehoram has that horrific disease of the bowels where he'll die in great agony. Ahaziah was executed by Yahweh's man raised up, Jehu, to cut off all of Ahab's house. In fact, it would seem fairly obvious that everyone would think anyway, that Judah, under Athaliah's influence, is doomed. So surely this woman is going to wake up and repent because God is judging, right? Surely she's going to recognize that she is opposing the covenant Lord and God will not be mocked. Surely that's the case, right? But that's not at all what happens. Like Pharaoh before her, who saw clear signs of Yahweh's power and anger, This woman is hardened in unbelief and she continues her terror. Indeed, such is her terror that the very promises of God are threatened. And now the question will be in the text, as also happened with Pharaoh in days of old, who is really in charge? Is it Yahweh or is it this wicked ruler? Who's going to prevail here? Now this is a very important question for the chronicler's audience who had been in the recent past crushed by Babylon and are now ruled by Persian pagans. Can God's promises come true when evil seems to be winning? Well, our text reminds them and us that we never need to lose heart in view of our God. That the covenant Lord overthrows even the forces of darkness and it will be His will and not the purposes of the devil that advances We have in our passage the comfort of the sovereignty of God even in the darkest of times. And we're going to see two things in our text as our God's plan moves ahead. We begin with a reign of terror. A reign of terror. Look again at verse 10. Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family of the house of Judah. When Judah's king, Ahaziah, who was Athaliah's son, when he left Jerusalem to go visit the wounded king of Israel to the north, it was likely to inquire of his health and maintain ongoing friendly relations with the northern kingdom of Israel. And it appeared not to matter to Ahaziah that Jehoshaphat, his grandfather, just about 15 years, maybe even 10 years earlier, had been rebuked multiple times for associating with Ahab's house. But now the king of Israel is family. He is a brother to Athaliah. He is an uncle to Ahaziah. And you've got to show support to your uncle, right? He's your own flesh and blood. And yet that trip north with Ahaziah is ordained by God for different reasons. It just so happened that the timing was such that Ahab's son, Jehoram, the king of Israel, and Ahab's grandson, Ahaziah, the king of Judah, are in the same place at the same time so that Yahweh's assassin, Jehu, can take them both out and strike them down as an act of God's judgment. Jehu first fires an arrow and kills Joram on the spot. And then he chases Ahaziah, shoots him, and he later finds him hiding in Samaria and he strikes him down. Now, there's no evidence to suggest that Athaliah was actually there and watched it all unfold. So when our text says in verse 10, Athaliah saw 
that her son was dead, the idea is she got a report of the assassination. Now, this woman in power in Jerusalem, she's mired in the muck of idolatry, and she has seen multiple displays of Yahweh's judgments, and they have been brutal judgments. Disease and death, dogs licking up her father Ahab's blood, darting arrows piercing the hearts of her brother and her son. Will she now grieve over the great wickedness of her family and recognize that she cannot oppose the Lord? Irony of ironies, Athaliah's name means Yahweh is exalted. And He will be exalted, but it won't be because she seeks His exaltation. In fact, like the thrown down dragon, the old serpent, the devil in Revelation 12, who is overcome by the blood of Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection, and now rages in His defeat, Athaliah, this servant of Satan, begins to rage. Ordinarily, when we lose family members, particularly children in an unexpected death, there's that obvious desire to draw close to the family and be comforted by their nearness. And that would be all the more so if as a mother you lost your son in his 20s and he had children, and you would normally want to take those little ones, your grandchildren, into your arms and hold them and comfort them. But that is not at all how Athaliah responds. Rather than seeing her grandchildren as a means of comfort, she looks at them as a threat. And she immediately begins to consolidate her power to seize the kingdom for herself. And how did ancient Near Eastern pagan rulers ensure that no rival could unseat them from the throne? Well, they killed all of their rivals. Athaliah's husband Jehoram had killed all of his brothers save one. And Athaliah now arose and destroyed all the royal family of the house of Judah. Or to put it a little more strikingly, she started murdering all her grandchildren. There are surely few examples in Scripture of wickedness as great as this. How darkened must someone be to cut down your own grandchildren or any other male relative to slaughter them to secure your own power? Now, If you remember in a previous chapter, amidst the great discouragement taking place when Athaliah's husband Jehoram reigned, the Lord said, 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 7, Yet, in spite of all this evil, the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David. And why not? Well, because He promised that David would have a forever king to sit on a forever throne. David's house would always have a lamp due to the tenacious covenant mercies of Yahweh. He will not let His people go. He will always preserve His people and give them a king to overcome. And that promise is the very promise fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it's alluded to as Gabriel speaks to Mary. Jesus is ultimately the lamp for David. But here, while God is not willing to destroy the house of David, Athaliah is more than willing to wipe them out, to put out the lamp and crush God's promise. And dear friends, as we read of this horror, Trying to imagine a henchman sent into the nurseries and playgrounds near the palace in Jerusalem to murder infants and toddlers of David's house. 
we have to see this grave situation is not merely an earthly lust for power. Athaliah's evil reeks of the foul scent of Satan who has worked like this before and will work like this again. Athaliah, with the things of the devil on her mind, who is a murderer from the beginning, she has set her heart to oppose the living God. She wants to see David's house fall. She wants to see God's promises fail. She wants to be exalted over against the Lord. She wants in her violent frenzy to prove that even the God of Judah can't beat her. So she lashes out and slaughters, and she succeeds in spilling blood. We're about to read about a courageous rescue, but let that not color the terror of the moment. We don't know how many children she struck down, but destruction actually took place. Who can fathom the weeping of mothers, the various wives of Ahaziah and of Jehoram grieving over this tragedy? What screams, what trembling, what inconsolable sorrow would have emerged from this place? And yet it would all be hidden grief, for you dare not show your sorrow before Athaliah, lest she kill you too. But there's something the text doesn't say that's really important. You see, throughout Chronicles and Kings, there's a formula given for the kings. This guy, the son of that guy, reigned. He was this age when he began to reign, and he reigned for X amount of years, And then we always get the report, he did what was evil or he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Well, notice in verse 10 and following, the author gives no such report. The author is saying, the death of Ahaziah brought an interruption in the house of David. And as Athaliah seizes control, She will be in control, at least to the eyes of the flesh, for several years, but she is an illegitimate ruler. She is not recognized. Like Satan himself, who is a god of this world, who has a kingdom, who rules over the sons of disobedience, Satan does not have real sovereignty. He's a poser. He acts big with his violent deeds. He aims to impose his will. But he's an imposter. So it is with Athaliah. Her reign is one of terror, but she's not ultimately reigning at all. Now it sure looks like she's reigning as blood stains the floor of the royal compound and we're told, verse 12, Athaliah reigned over the land. She's running the show, but she's not really running the show. While she's grabbing power in a vacuum, There's a great temptation for God's people to believe, to lose heart, to think that wickedness is going to prevail. How can the godly persevere when evil is so great? How can we hang on when the opposition is such that the very people of God are being killed? Is there any hope amidst all this terror? Well, brethren, I tell you there is. And it's vital for the saints of God to recognize amidst the raging battle here this spiritual conflict with physical implications, that none of it is taking our God by surprise. In fact, it's all unfolding according to a prophecy the Lord God spoke over the serpent all the way back in Genesis 3 and verse 15. You remember that 
verse, the Lord condemned Satan. He declared, I will put enmity. I will sovereignly establish conflict between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your seed, Satan, and her seed. The sons of God and the children of the devil are locked in conflict. And God has already declared victory to come that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. God has spelled out Satan's doom. But that doesn't mean the devil will go quietly into this night. He won't just be a shrinking violet and slip away. He lashes out. And we see that warfare happen in the very next chapter of the Bible where Cain, who was of the evil one, slaughters his brother Abel. There can be no snake crusher to kill the serpent if the line in Abel is destroyed. Well, that's Satan's strategy. Only after Abel is killed, the Lord provides Seth. We see it again in Exodus 1 and 2. The expanding sons of Jacob who have grown from twelve boys to a multitude are under attack in Egypt. Pharaoh orders that all Hebrew males be butchered. He commands the Hebrew midwives to kill their people. Thankfully, they don't do it. So Pharaoh expands his infanticide plot. He commands all of his people to take those little Hebrew nails, males and throw them into the Nile. Feed them to the crocodiles. Destruction is unfolding. But there amidst death and destruction, baby Moses is preserved by Pharaoh's own daughter. Now, that doesn't take away the years of terror. That doesn't take away the real grief as people are dying. That doesn't take away the bloodshed, the horrible wickedness. God's action in history, dear friends, does not mean that we escape all hard things. Do you remember how Paul puts this in Romans chapter 8 when he's asking, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he lays out all the things God's people are facing. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, Lord, for Your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. We are actually in the midst of terror. And what's the word of comfort? Now in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Yes, we're being attacked. But God's purposes endure. Because God is the one who is exercising His power over biblical history. But let that not minimize the point here, dear friends, that Satan is attempting and carrying out violent schemes to eradicate the Savior to come. And he regularly uses great men, whether Pharaoh or Haman or Herod, to destroy the people of God. Terror is the devil's tactic. And he'll resort to any method, taking whatever means necessary to stop Messiah from coming, even provoking a grandmother to kill her grandchildren. The devil operating behind the scenes here in Athaliah is ruthless. And we need to understand as we look at this scene, the true threat of Satan. Satan is not a mythological figure to scare children. Satan is a real enemy. Satan is a prowling lion. Satan is dangerous. Satan is always out to devour. Satan is intent on murder. And he is working in the sons of disobedience. He's doing it inside the people of God. 
as he is in our text. And he's doing it sometimes on the outside of the people of God, all to come against us. And of course, he terrorizes in multiple ways. He does it through horrible slaughter, like Herod sending his henchmen to kill all the children in Bethlehem. He does it through another Herod to cut off the head of John the Baptist and to indicate anyone who threatens him shall be put to death. He brings a perfect terror of, of storm and power against Jesus, a betraying disciple, so-called religious men who are whitewashed tombs, who hate each other, banding together to kill Jesus. He has them even say to Pilate, whom they hate, we have no king but Caesar. Satan is attacking with viciousness. But all the while, he's only achieving what God determines shall come to pass. But when Satan is thrown down through the resurrection of Christ, friends, he's Satan still. Because he only then turns to attack the seed of, of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Satan will not rest until he imposes his terror, aiming to rip the church to pieces. And the people of God in the Chronicler's day and the people of God in our day, we have to recognize that we are in a spiritual war. Satan desires to have you. Satan wants you to stumble. Satan wants to wreck you, to render you useless, to drive you to unbelief, to kill you if he can. He roars with violence to provoke you to doubt the promises of God. And he'll use the slow cooker seducing you until you're destroyed, which is what he's doing in the West, or he'll all out turn the swords against you to cut you down. But Satan wants you to look at the landscape of the situation, his apparent dominion, and make you quake and drive you to unbelief. Can you fathom being a believer in the days of Athaliah, thinking that all is lost? And yet as the devil advances his plot of devastation, the Lord wants to ask this question. In whose power do you trust? Whose word governs your lives? In these seasons of darkness that are real and sometimes last a while, where is your security? Is it in appeasing the godless or standing on the truth of God's word? When the prince of darkness is wielding his power, do we trust by faith that the light of hope shall not be extinguished because the covenant promises of God cannot fail? Yes, the readers of Chronicles are, are under Persian rule with Greece ruling soon and Rome to follow. And there's no Davidic king on the throne. But does that mean the darkness will win? Or if I could put it to you this way, you don't yet see the fact that Christ is reigning on the throne. Does that mean the darkness will win? No. See secondly with me, a but God moment in our story. The rule of providence. Athaliah is slicing up the sons of Ahaziah, but, verse 11, Jehoshabeth, the daughter of the king, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons, who were about to be put to death, and she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. This is like a thriller story. Again, try to picture it through your sanctified imagination. A murderer is on the loose in the house, and a heroine, a woman of great courage, 
takes action. She grabs one of the children, a nursing baby and his nurse, and puts him and the nurse in an interior room. I don't know about you, I have all kinds of questions at this point. Did God keep the baby from crying as the assassin walked by? Did they have to stay hidden in a closet? How long were they trapped? When did Jehoshabeth facilitate their escape? We're not told any of this. But we are told that by God's grace, baby Joash, the one remaining son in David's line, is preserved. And Jehoshabeth, the sister of Ahaziah, therefore was someone who has compassion on her nephews, a godly woman, the wife of Jehoiada the priest, she successfully hides the boy as the kill squad moves through the palace. And then at some point, she gets him, verse 12, to the temple where he's hidden for six years. Six years of Athaliah's terror. Now think about this situation in the providence of God at work. We may be tempted to think in a house of the likes of wicked Jehoram and wicked Ahaziah and wicked Athaliah, no one could possibly serve the Lord here. This is a house where you can just say, that's a stamp of darkness and nobody, nobody could serve God. That's not true. God has a friend, a servant, in the house of the enemy. It's reminiscent of Paul saying in Philippians how the house of Caesar sends you greetings. In the very locus of darkness, God has won people to Himself. That's what He's done here. This woman is an unlikely friend. Her father, Jehoram, the spilling out bowels guy, you remember him? He is entrenched in evil. But Yahweh plucks Jehoram's daughter, likely the stepdaughter of Athaliah, as a brand from the burning. Do you see, brethren, even when Satan is doing his worst, even when it seems like he's having great victories, the Lord is still preserving a people who serve Him. What a comfort. The church shall never perish her dear Lord to defend. Do you remember how the Lord tells Elijah, who thinks he's alone, I alone am left? There are 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Satan's terror will never squash the people of God. And the Lord can bring the most unlikely folks out of the woodwork to serve Him. Don't you see this in the Gospels? Who does Jesus uh, rescue by the grace of God there at the end. It's two people who are on the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. You would never think these people would serve Christ, but they're the ones attending to His body. The Lord can have a Saul of Tarsus in the very execution of wicked deeds and He can save such a one. Satan's terror cannot stop the power of God. Brethren, that is a comfort and it should make you optimistic in living for the Lord. Well, here's Jehoshabeth. She sees the wickedness of her stepmother spilling the blood of her grandchildren, and she moves to act. And she rises up to save one child. And as she does that, I want you to understand, this woman is a nobody. She's no person of consequence. She's part of the royal house, sure, but she has no power. She's never mentioned again. She's totally behind the scenes. But isn't that exactly the kind of person that our God is in the business of using? He chooses the weak to shame the strong. The have-nots 
to bring to nothing the high and mighty. He's a God of the lowly, and He overthrows the proud through weakness. Whether it's five women thwarting Pharaoh in Exodus 1 and 2, or a woman driving a tent peg through Sisera's skull, the great iron chariot general, or a young shepherd boy, David, who just is slinging stones to take down a giant, or best of all, salvation through a cross. This is one of those great moments where God stirs the lowly to act as His means to preserve. You see, Jehoshaphat clearly sees that the line of David is threatened, and she will not stand by and watch. She's likely frightened. I dare say she's probably scared to death, but fear does not rule her. It has been said that courage is not the absence of fear, but acting when afraid. Overcoming to do what is needed with trust in God. And that is exactly what Jehoshabeth does. She risks her life to steal away Joash. Now we have no idea if she totally understands the significance of this moment. That she is the sole means of preserving the Davidic line. That if she doesn't do what she does, there is no Jesus. There's no way to get to Christ. But whatever she understands, in this moment her eye is ultimately on God, on fearing Him, on trembling at His presence. And thus, she's working out her salvation. And what I mean by that is this, she doesn't stand by and say, you know, I know God is sovereign and He will fulfill His promise, so I'll just trust Him and not get involved. I mean, I could get hurt if I got involved. I don't want to get involved. No, brethren, it's her trust in God's sovereignty that drives her to act. In this moment, she counts her life as nothing so that she might protect the seed of David. And it's a remarkable act of faith in a season of darkness. The very action she takes should stir our hearts to think, is God's sovereignty driving me to overcome fear and act? I know God will save His people. So I don't have to open my mouth and say anything about Jesus to others, right? Or do I, trusting that God will save His people, speak boldly for the name of Christ? I know God will preserve the godly and none of His people can be lost. But when I see those who are trapped in sin who claim the name of Jesus, I don't really want to get involved. I think I'll stand by and do nothing. Am I such a man-pleaser that I dare not defend Christ's honor and rescue a believer ensnared in sin? Or do I speak? Do I confront? Do I overcome the fear of a negative response and tell a friend of their danger? Am I willing to take risks for the glory of God and the good of His people? Likewise, when wicked men rule and bring terror, do we just sit around and complain about it? Or do we do something? Do we see it's time for the godly to act? We must not be at ease in Zion. We must be willing to risk our very lives to walk by faith to do what is right. Jehoshabeth gives us an example, I think, of Jesus' words. Jesus says in Luke 14, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. Jehoshabeth hated her life. That is, she counted her life as nothing. 
that God's Word might be fulfilled. She walked by faith and not by sight. She did what was righteous and left the results with the Lord. And notice that it wasn't simply one act of heroism either. We can all be courageous for a second. Look at what verse 12 says. And he, Joash, remained with them six years hidden in the house of God while Athaliah reigned over the land. Can you imagine the kind of sacrifice Jehoshaphat gave to raise this boy? She was, in effect, his mother. She adopted him. And she ensured he was clear of Athaliah's gaze for six years. What courage! All motivated by faith in a sovereign God. Is that the kind of faith we exercise knowing God has triumphed in Jesus Christ? Is this the way that we live? With no fear of man. Eager to be a disciple of Christ. Eager to live out the Gospel in a hostile world. Beloved, does God's sovereignty empower us to live a life of faithfulness even when it costs you something? Should this not give us courage to stand for Christ? To trust that He providentially rules over all things? Our story is one of great irony. It's a tale of two women. On the one hand, we have Athaliah, who kills her grandchildren to secure her throne. And on the other hand, we have Jehoshabeth, who risks her life to save a helpless baby. On the one hand, we have self-seeking exploitation. And on the other, unselfish heroism. Athaliah is filled with selfish ambition to the destruction of others. Jehoshabeth is filled with humility that considers others as more important than herself. And she's willing to obey to the point of death. Does that remind you of anyone? Our Savior Jesus Christ willing to humble Himself for us to the point of death. When Athaliah sees her family, she hates them. She hates her family that she might oppose God. When Jehoshabeth sees her family, She hates her family so that she might live for the glory of God. And it begs the question, where is our allegiance? Is it wrapped up in our own self-preservation and power? Or have we lost our lives for the Gospel that we might gain our lives? The Pharaohs and Athaliahs and Herods of the world may do their best to crush God's purpose. The evil one might strike to crush the Lord Jesus as he did in that scene at Bethlehem. But they have met their match in the providential working of God because at the very moment when they think they win, they're totally oblivious to the fact that a loophole has spelled their doom. Now you might wonder, how in the world can Athaliah be in charge and not know about this boy? How could she not hear about him for six years? It should be fairly obvious to you, first of all, that she doesn't really like her family that much. She's not the kind of woman who's giving her grandchildren presents for Christmas. She doesn't care about them. But furthermore, that boy is hidden in the one place she will never go. The house of God. We're sown in this passage a theme that runs through the entire Bible, reaching its height in Jesus, but continuing in the church. That whenever the people of God feel themselves a struggling minority, God is working. Even when Satan appears to win his greatest victory, he actually seals his greatest defeat. 
Friends, does such a remarkable irony and providence cause you to bow the knee in amazement at God? Does it fire your heart with trust in this Lord that He rules in the darkness? That He won't let His promises fall to the ground? That God's oath is sure? He will bring His Word to pass? He is the one who says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none besides Me. I'm the one who declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times what is still to come. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So how dare we doubt the power of God Almighty to build His church, to preserve His people, to achieve His purpose. And just so you don't miss the depth of providence here, Even Jehoshabeth's name reminds us of God's power. Her name means Yahweh has sworn an oath. He's made a covenant. His oath, His promise, His covenant will come about. How does the hymn writer put it? His oath, His covenant, His blood support me in the whelming flood. The promises of God sustain you. Are you hanging on to them? Do you really believe Christ will build His church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it? Beloved, let us be a people who cling to the promises of God. And even when darkness has its day, we don't faint in unbelief. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before You in awe of the way that You work out Your purposes. And we praise You that we can know that You work all things together for good for those who love You and are called according to Your purpose. Lord, that doesn't mean that all things are good, for great terror can unfold against Your people. But Lord, You work it for good because Your purposes can never be thwarted. Lord, let us be comforted by that truth and let us act courageously. Forgive us, O Lord, for our passivity. Forgive us for being ruled by fear. Let us be bold to live for Christ and to speak for Christ, knowing that our God reigns. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen.